Mindfulness Mode 159. I think the American Revolution, you could argue that mindfulness could have made a difference. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on today's Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Mindful Tribe, thanks so much for joining us today. If you listened last time, episode 157, you'll remember that we had Jay Fissat on. And what an amazing, talented man. He coaches people. He helps people with mindset. But one of the things he talked about is making recordings to hear yourself and be motivated by yourself. So if you haven't heard his episode, I really strongly encourage you to check back, listen to it, and listen to how you can be your own self-motivator. Now today, I'm really excited because we have an historian on the show who is really, really talented and into American history. And I think you're going to love hearing how mindful she is and how focused and grounded and centered So settle in and enjoy our wonderful guest today. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I am really excited because I have Liz Covert on the line today. Hey, Liz, are you in mindfulness mode? I'm trying, Bruce. This is a great place to focus and and be mindful, though. Yeah, Liz Covart loves the study of history. She's an historian who shares her knowledge of American history with the world through her podcast, Ben Franklin's World. Each episode features a conversation with an historian who helps shed light on important people and events from early American history that shaped our present-day world. Elizabeth holds a Ph.D. in history from the University of California, where she studied with two-time Pulitzer Prize winner historian Alan Taylor. So Liz, what exactly does mindfulness mean to you, a historian? Mindfulness to me means being deliberate in your thoughts, in your actions, what you're doing. In a historian's context, it means being deliberate in how you read a historical document, not imposing your own views upon it, but trying to really think about, you know, how that document or object or whatever historical source you're looking at was created and what the purpose of that historical source was supposed to be. So that's what mindfulness means to me. Yeah, and that's really interesting because it must be tricky to read some of those documents and not apply the way we think about life to it. It's very hard. And that's, you know, historians try really hard to be objective when they look at the past. You don't want to impose your views. But all of our interests are shaped by our present day. So, for example, I'm really fascinated in how people in early America overcame intense periods of cultural and political conflict. And that's because I grew up in a United States that is increasingly polarized in culture and political conflict. Um, So, you know, that my present day circumstance informs what I'm interested in about the past. I just have to try not to, you know, impose too much of that on the past. Yeah, well, I mean, 200 years ago, they had such different challenges, completely different from what we face today. And we talk about using mindfulness to help us get focused and become grounded. And what kinds of methods did our ancestors use to achieve these same goals? It's a really good question. Um, Early America was a very religious place. So I think a lot of people Uh went to church and they were hopefully mindful in church as they worshipped, you know, whatever faith that they had. Most of it was Protestant sects, 
that were here in North America. So I think you have religion. Mm -hmm. You also had a lot of correspondence and letter writing. So people kept a lot of diaries and letters um, and correspondence that they made because that was how you communicated. There wasn't any email or Skype or telephone calls. You know, they had to write out what they were thinking and what they thought just to keep in touch with friends and relatives. Well, so it's it's interesting you say that because so many of my guests talk about they maintain their mindfulness by journaling and they did far more journaling really in the past than we ever do today. Today, it's like we really have to try hard to be disciplined to just sit down and write anything. We're not even used to it. So they did it all the time. So that's interesting. And do you think that they meditated? Is there ever mention of meditation at all? I haven't seen mention of meditation, at least in the North American context. I mean, we right. know that, you know, in eight parts of Asia that there was Buddhism and Hinduism and, and faiths and practices that had meditation built in, but I haven't seen any in North America. Yes, I I thought that same thing. I think that Asian tradition, that's more of a recent thing where that's kind of started to infiltrate North America. But um, I know that my grandfather was a Sunday school superintendent. And even back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, he kind of used the word meditation at church. And it was applied to prayer. And then later... I noticed that in churches, if we talked about meditation, people kind of got a little bit uncomfortable because they thought we were talking about the Eastern tradition. But the word meditation has been associated with even Christian religion here in North America, hasn't it? It has. And I do, I mean, I think people in North America were very reflective. Like if you think about the writings of John Adams or Thomas Jefferson, they were thinking about in old age what they had done during the American Revolution and thinking about, you know, the outcomes of certain events that they didn't know how they turn out at the time that they were involved with them. And they'd reflect on that. And I think reflection is a form of meditation, right? I think so, too. Yeah, I think so, too, because did more people write their memoirs back then? Was there, was there more of that, do you think? I don't know about their memoirs. I mean, certainly people like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were very concerned about how they'd be remembered. But I don't think most right. people were like that because they, they didn't participate in this huge event that everybody knew was a huge event at the time. But I do think people wrote down what they were thinking. Like I just read a blog post actually um, about how there'd be these orderly books. And the orderly book is really, if you're in the military, you keep things like orders and duties and responsibilities that, you know, your unit is supposed to be doing each day. And within these orderly books from the French and Indian War, which was between 1754 and 1763, you have some of these soldiers that were keeping them writing, forget me not, like it's literally a note saying forget me not or some version of it. So, I mean, they do want to be remembered, but are they going home and writing their memoirs? I don't, I don't think so. For the most part, they may keep a journal that they expect might be left behind, but but not in the same sense of like, let's write a book and publish it so everybody knows what we did. Sure. Ben Franklin's well known for his quote, early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And this reminds me of Hal Elrod's book, Miracle Morning, where he talks about establishing an early morning routine and making it a life habit. In what ways was Ben Franklin a mindful man? Is that something you can talk about? 
Well, I mean, Franklin certainly had his morning routine, um, just like many of us have. Uh, so I think that helped him be mindful in the morning um, and throughout the day. Like many of us, Ben Franklin, he wasn't a wealthy man when he was born. Uh, so he had to work his way up to becoming wealthy. And I think there were a lot of things that he learned by interacting with other individuals and with other like-minded artisans in his Junto club that did help him succeed in the end. And I think, you know, a large part of his success was being mindful of what worked and what doesn't work, what could work and trying those things out. Do you think there was more attention to habit and routines back in those days? I think to some extent, yes, because there was no electricity and where people had like a light bulb that they could turn on at night. So I think that you were, your daily routine was very much connected with sunrise and sunset. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. It must have been so challenging to live that way. And yet, you know, maybe not. Maybe life was so much simpler in some ways because they didn't have technology to deal with. They didn't have some of the challenges we have today. How would you like to have lived back in those days? Well, I always like to say I'd like to go mentally back in time and be like a casual visitor, but I don't really want to live in early America. And I never want to smell early America because I don't imagine it smelling very good at all. Um, but I, I do think I do take your point of, you know, they didn't have technology and other things that distract us. I was just thinking, you know, I get up with the sun. I tend to get up with the sun and I go for my run and I, you know, I meditate with this moving form of meditation. Um, that's my me time. But if the sun went out and I couldn't be working on my next podcast episode or reading the next book that I needed to read, it would probably drive me nuts. And yet, people in early America probably did have a bit more time with their families and to be mindful because they didn't have some of these other distractions or work that they could be doing at night. And did they exercise? You mentioned going for your run. What did they do to stay fit? Well, Ben Franklin liked to swim. He was kind of odd. Most early Americans, um, and this is a carryover from the Middle Ages, didn't really care for water. Um, but Franklin liked to swim across the channel. And at one point, he actually thought of staying in England rather than coming back to the United States or to the colonies. And this was when he was in his late teens, early 20s, to become a swim instructor oh. because everybody thought it was so novel that he could swim. But um, oh. so I think people did exercise. They did go horseback riding. Um, they would go hunting. But I also think a lot of a, a lot of work people did was just so manual that you'd get exercise just by doing tasks. I mean, even think of a woman taking care of the house, right? She's got to physically bring in pots of water into the house to boil it. She's got to stoke and keep the fire going. When she's got to clean the floor, she's getting down on her hands and knees with brushes and soap and water, you know, and scrubbing the floor. I mean, that's a lot of manual and, yes. and physical exertion. It sure is. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I never really thought about exercise and how they stayed fit because, yeah, I'm sure it was bringing wood in from, for the fire and all of those kinds of tasks. Yeah, and you'd have to chop that wood before you could bring it in for the fire. Of course, of course you would. <laughs> you know, Liz, I was thinking, your podcast is so engaging, and you make it even more so with opt-ins and prizes and things like that. In what way were people in early America motivated and inspired to take action? I think it depends on the situation. I mean, certainly we can all think of events throughout, you know, just even early American or United States history where people felt compelled to action, like the civil rights movement or the American Revolution or the Civil War. 
Um, I mean, those were all actions. You have protests um, and movements for like women's suffrage. So I think it just depends, you know, what people want to do, how they want to improve society. I think anytime you want to improve your condition and in, in your society, you're willing to take action. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you, those passions that we have are what help us to definitely take action. Well, you've taken action in creating your podcast and creating something that so many people benefit from. How do you use mindfulness in doing that and creating your podcast? I've actually probably gotten more mindful of my podcast as I've, you know, been going along. I mean, the podcast mm-hmm. is almost two years old now. And when I started that podcast, I really thought it was going to be a side project. I thought I was going to write lots of books and articles about history. And yet I'd have this project that allowed me to talk about and practice how we communicate history with non-historians and to, you know, share the work of all these great professional historians with the world, because a lot of people don't know what historians do or what they're working on. So that's what I really thought it would be a side project. And it's not that I wasn't thoughtful of the time I put into early episodes, but as the podcast started getting more listeners and more positive feedback, both from listeners and colleagues, I started putting in more time and thinking about, you know, ways I could improve the show so it would be even better. So, you know, now I will reword questions that didn't go right the first time, or maybe a historian didn't answer the question that I thought I had asked. So I'll reword that so it makes sense. Or sometimes, you know, like in any profession, you know your own professional lingo. So if a historian said something like, well, you know, with the task system of slavery and goes on to talk about their point, but never mentions, you know, what that task system is, I'll ask in a follow-up, you know, would you tell us briefly what the task system is? And they would say, sure, it's this practice of slavery where slaves were given um, by their overseer or masters a list of things they needed to get done that week or that day. And as soon as they finished all the items on that list, all the tasks on that list, their time was supposed to be their own. And what I'll, what I'll do is I'll listen when I listen to the episode, can I move that brief answer that clarifies things, that provides context into the original answer? Or does it make sense to leave it alone? So I'm very mindful about how I edit. I never want to take a guest out of context but I am looking for ways I can make the episode flow better so that things, you know, are always adding to the point um, and not distracting. I want people to focus on the history that's being told and not necessarily on everything else that's going on. I want them to be able to just enjoy the episode without thinking about audio quality or verbal tics or anything like that. So it sounds like you do your own editing on every episode then. I do. And I also work with an audio engineer. I've always worked with an audio engineer because audio quality has always been very important to me because I don't like to be distracted by poor audio quality. I'm sure as your listeners know, because Bruce, you have great audio quality on your show. Yeah, it's Um, very important to me as well. Yeah. So I've always worked with an engineer. Right now I'm working with Daryl Darnell. So I'll edit the show and I have to do the context edits because I'm a historian. He's an audio engineer and and Daryl knows a lot, but he can't he can't make the decision of let's move that task system explanation into a previous answer and where to move that. But he can clean up a lot of stuff that I'll miss. And then he, he really tweaks the audio. I like to call Daryl my, my magician. He's a magician behind the scenes and he'll do like a second pass edit and, and clean everything up. And then I'll, I'll listen to the show again to make sure we got everything. 
Well, he's amazingly talented, and I actually find editing in itself to be a mindful experience. I look forward to it, and I just, I like to sit down and just not think about anything else except just editing that show. So it sounds like you're much like that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a mindful exercise. I I equate editing audio kind of like with writing. You know, when you sit down to write something, you're always like, well, how can I tweak this sentence? What can I move around to make my story flow better. And that's kind of what we do in audio. It's a little different, but it's very, very similar. Well, I know you love sports. And we mentioned a little bit about how years ago, you know, they did horseback riding and different things. But were they focused on team sports like we are today? Because I think that can be a very mindful experience for a lot of people nowadays. Well, I'm not a sports historian, so I can't say like when team sports is like a a form of entertainment took off. I mean, I know baseball is around like the 1860s. Right. Um, But even that, the way it was played was not the organized method that we go and attend like a major league baseball or minor league baseball game today. I do think that they were into sports um, in the sense that they were into horse racing, cockfighting, bear baiting, things we wouldn't even participate in today. Right. Um, They were very much into... I think they did run races, you know, against each other at, at picnics and formal things. So I think sport was a part of their life, but like the organized team sports that we pay lots of money to go see and, the, and root for these teams with such passion, I don't think that existed back then. So in your personal life, tell us about the part that, that sports plays. Is it mindful for you? It is mindful. I fell in love with baseball when I was five years old. I asked my parents for Red Sox tickets for my fifth birthday, and I got to go to my first game in August, and I never saw them play because it rained out. But I was just so happy to be at Fenway Park. Um, And I've been going to games ever since. So my partner, Tim, and I are season ticket holders to the Red Sox today. Um, We split our season tickets with uh, other people. So we go to about half the home games, which is still a lot. And what I look forward to those during baseball season is not only is baseball like a really mindful game of like, well, what pitch are they going to throw next? Are they going to attempt to bunt? Are they going to swing away? I mean, there's a lot of strategy in baseball you can consider, but it's also a mindful way that Tim and I spend time together because we both do, we work a lot. We're, we're workaholics, Bruce. There's no way to sugarcoat that. And we, it's just because we enjoy what we do. And by going to these baseball games, you know, some cases multiple times per week, We're making a mindful, you know, a date with ourselves saying, well, we're going to go out and hang out with each other. And and that's what we do. So unless the game is really bad where we it's just more interesting to spend more time on our smartphones and watching the game, you know, we're watching the game and commenting on it together. So it's just a it is our mindful way of being sure we spend more time together. Sure, that makes sense. Liz, I've worked in bullying prevention for a long time, and I'm really curious about how bullying was looked at in the past, you know, by our ancestors. And I'm wondering if you have any any stories about, you know, some kind of, I mean, bullying obviously led to wars or led to different things. But do you have a story where mindfulness would have made a difference? I don't, well, I think the American Revolution, you could argue that mindfulness could have made a difference if there had been a bigger, better dialogue between the colonies and Parliament and King George III, they might have been able to work out some resolution that didn't involve war and independence. So I think that's like one big example. I also think it's an example where you can find people acting very deliberately and very mindfully. When the Patriots destroyed those 342 chests of tea in Boston Harbor 
on the night of December 16th, 1773, they were they knew exactly what they were doing. They only broke one piece of private property when they boarded those three ships bearing the tea. I should say three pieces of property. They broke the locks on the hold. And then they repaid those locks. You know, they repaid the captains for those locks. So all they did was destroy the East India Tea Company. So they were very deliberate in, in their actions. You know, and if you want to take a more modern example of a movement that had a lot of mindfulness in it, or there could have been more mindfulness added to it, I would say this, you could look to the civil rights movement. If you think about the actions that Rosa Parks and others took to ride the buses and not sit in the back, or that those students took in Greensboro, North Carolina, Nashville, Tennessee, and other places where they sat at the lunch counters and very deliberately weren't looking to be violent they, pro- they knew that there'd probably be violence committed against them, which is the bullying aspect, right? But they very mindfully said, we're not going to respond. We are just going to be peaceful. Um, so there are lots of different mindful approach approaches to the civil rights movement. Being peaceful and nonviolent was just one of them, of course. Right. Very, very interesting to, to just think about that and how things might have been different in history, you know, as a result of it. You know... A lot of people nowadays use mantras and they use, you know, they envision what they want and, well, they use vision boards and different kinds of things. Is there anything like that that pops up into your mind that that people used in history to help them get directed and focused? I think probably journaling was the best one. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, that's probably more reflective than visioning the future, but... I mean, people like Benjamin Franklin were ambitious. They had goals. Like Benjamin Franklin wanted to be a successful printer and he worked to being able to, you know, worked to get be able to get to the point where he was able to franchise out his business and make lots of money doing it so he could retire early. So I I think keeping memoirs and journals and things like that were probably the closest we'd find to a vision board. But, you know, I know such a small period of history when you look at the whole gamut of everything you can study in history. There may be an example out there like that. Right. Interesting. Interesting. My next questions, Liz, are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who's one person who has influenced you to be more mindful? I think my advisor, Alan Taylor, he, I mean, he wasn't, you know, advocating meditation or things like that, but he was advocating that I need to be mindful in the way I read historical sources. I need to remember that there's always two, at least two you know, points of view to every story and that I need to consider those points of view and not just take each document literally. So th- thinking about that has, I think, made me a better historian. So how has mindfulness affected your emotions? Emotionally? Um, <laughs> I, I'm very logical, and I think my, being mindful and thinking out, you know, every situation as to what it is, what it could be, where it could go, um, you know, helps me come up with an appropriate emotional uh, mindset. Right. I, I think a lot of your mindfulness, Liz, just comes naturally, if I'm not mistaken. It probably does. I had to really think about how I was going to answer that question. Right. Right. Tell us how breathing might be part of your mindfulness practice. 
I do a lot of yoga. So breathing is always important. I make sure I breathe and I will think about my breathing as I'm running during my moving meditation as well. So breathing plays a big role. Anytime I get really stressed out or, you know, run into some sort of hurdle I need to overcome, I'm always making sure I take a deep breath. So I find breath to be very calming and centering. Right. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? I like the book Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. It's by Greg McCown. I think I'm pronouncing his last name right. But what I really liked about that is you always have choices of what you could be focusing on and you need to figure out what you want to focus on, why you want to focus on it, and putting boundaries on that focus. So do you want to work to the point where you're neglecting your family? Um, If you pursue this extra project, what effect is that going to have on your primary project in your family and just thinking through some of those situations. Can you share an app which might help you to be more mindful? I really am a fan of the Naturescape app and all it does is play nature sounds. So when I'm writing or need to concentrate and just need a bit of background noise, I like to listen to the ocean. Oh, that sounds great. What advice would you give a person who just really wants to get focused and wants to get centered and maybe be more mindful? What would you suggest? I think I'd start with taking a few minutes each day and I would make it the same few minutes each day. So first thing in the morning, right before you go to bed, those tend to be the easiest, I think. But just taking a little bit of time for yourself each day and just reflecting upon your day or, you know, focusing on your breath, doing just something small like baby steps um, to get into a way of, of thinking about how you can be mindful and, um, you know, how breath or, or taking moments like that could improve your day. Right. That makes sense. You know, it's been really fascinating talking with you, learning not only about you, but how people in the past used some of these techniques and got focused and got grounded and It's really, I think, something we can be doing more of is more journaling, as we've discussed. Liz, how can we learn more about what you do and maybe connect with you? The easiest place would be benfranklinsworld.com. You'll find an About Me page. Everywhere you can contact me is listed on that website. Plus, you can check out the podcast. So that's the best way. And in terms of social media, I love Twitter. So if you happen to be on Twitter, just tweet me, at Liz Covart, and we can connect that way. And if I may, Bruce, just one thing to your last point about, you know, people of the past. One of the aspects I love most about studying history is time always changes. The circumstances of time changes. So as we've noted today, we have a lot more technology in our life than people like Benjamin Franklin had in his life. But human behavior doesn't really change. So to the fact that we see so many mindful practices happening in the past, even if they happen just a little bit differently from the way we we uh, practice them today, that that just goes to show you that human behavior just doesn't change much. Right. It really does. And it's so interesting to me, you know, to to learn that. So thank you for sharing everything that you've shared today. It's been it's been excellent. Thank you so much, Bruce. And thank you so much, Mindful Tribe, for having me. I really appreciated being on the show. Great. Bye now. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. In appreciation, I'll mention you at the top of an upcoming show. 
Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.